0: Bruce MacDonald is the President and CEO of Imagine Canada, and he has devoted his life to social good. Formerly the CEO of Big Brothers Big Sisters Canada, Bruce has worked with all aspects of the philanthropic sector over his 30 plus year career. Now, with Imagine Canada, Bruce and his team work with nonprofits and charities to help answer questions and inform the public about the sector through programming and partnerships all across the country.
1: The type of thinking that organizations need to embody are a few things. One is we've got to have some courage to mm-hmm. ask questions about the status quo. If, if the, the national data is mirrored in local reports, we better be asking questions about what are
0: we going to do. I sat down with Bruce to talk about the role of philanthropy in society, trends and strategies in the charitable and nonprofit sectors, and the culture of philanthropy on a national scale.
1: Because the difference you make today counts in all our tomorrows.
0: Bruce, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for being on the podcast. Uh, It's awesome to talk to you. We've had you on the River City 360 program before, but uh, it's cool to have an opportunity to sit down and have kind of a more in-depth chat about what you know when it comes to charities and philanthropy all across Canada.
1: Well, well, we'll see what there is to know. <laughs>
0: for sure. I guess the first, let's let let's get a bit of additional context. Give me, you got, sort of paint the picture of how you got to be in this position of the president and CEO of Imagine Canada and how you got to be here and why you wanted to to, to take that role.
1: Sure. Well, it, it's funny that uh, what was kind of a, an eclectic career path all came together when I wanted to apply for this role. So I originally came out of university with a commerce degree in sport management and in Canada, amateur sport is organized as nonprofits. So I had spent some time in that world, decided to make a change, went into a community service club, was working with older adults, a whole pile of different, um, almost sort of market segments within the charitable sector. And then after a long period of time at Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Canada, decided that I wanted to do something that could affect the entire system Mm -hmm. in which charities and nonprofits operated. And so an organization like Imagine Canada was one I was interested in and was fortunate, for me at least, that uh, as I was sort of looking at that interest, um, the position became available. And then having this this background where I, I actually had connected with different parts of the sector sort of rolled up nicely
0: how important do you think having those multiple perspectives is when it comes to this uh, industry because you know you have the funder and the and the fundee as it were but like you're very uniquely equipped to to understand the perils that a lot of these organizations are going through i would imagine yeah i think it was
1: very helpful because I've, i've worked at a community level a provincial level a national level i've had the good fortune of working for organizations where i had the opportunity to to visit Canadian communities but really outside of the big cities so it was nice to be able to bring a perspective that was at least informed by some travel across Canada where it wasn't going to just hotel ballrooms and and banquet facilities or corporate meeting rooms it was sitting in small towns with people who were the actual volunteers and the service recipients for me it's always been a perspective I've tried to be mindful of not losing and, Mm -hmm. and retain that lens
0: of how does this actually work on the ground right. for volunteers and hardworking staff? Why do you think that there's a disconnect between the organizations, maybe that get really big and have have all these policy ideas and things, compared to the people who are on the ground doing the work? Like, where's that disconnect?
1: Well, I I don't know if there's a disconnect, but there certainly is a difference in scale. I mean, it's the same, you know, you can use the same analogy when thinking about corporate Canada and a mom-and-pop shop versus some of the largest Canadian corporations. There's ways of operating that are fundamentally different. Uh, You have to have more formal structures and and systems in place to be able to do that kind of work. Um, And so, you know, I see organizations who are large and in urban centers who are as connected to their community and the people that they're serving, as as small town ones, however, issues are different. Is, issues of scale are different. Issues of size are different. Issues of capacity right. are different.
0: That's always the big one, right? Yeah. It's capacity. Everyone talks about that. So how do we how do we bridge that gap of getting people to understand the importance of building capacity and that that costs money? So investing in capacity might not go directly towards the cause that they happen to be supporting, but it is eventually going to support that cause. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think part of it, I think it's a multifaceted approach. There are opportunities for us to actually cite data that shows that organizations who invest in infrastructure and uh, capacity deliver higher program outcomes. And for many donors, understanding that their dollars are achieving more good Is in fact important. Um, I I think it's also ensuring that Canadians have an understanding that this is this is no longer, for the most part, a sector that's done out of someone's kitchen, right? You know, off their kitchen table. There are trained professionals in a wide variety of areas, and and those professionals need to be able to make a living at it. I mean, the, the most recent data that came out from Statistics Canada just a month ago showed that. This sector is still well below the average annual salary, mm-hmm. so it is still a poorer paid sector. So the perception
0: that uh, there's a lot of money being made, mm-hmm. by and large, just isn't true. For sure. Um, imagine Canada is in a unique perspective too; that you get to you get access to a lot of different data sets and a lot of different, uh, you know, across the country. You're learning about how these charitable, charitable sectors are functioning. What's something that's uh, come out most recently? We talked uh, uh, before we started recording about trust in the sector. Uh, just maybe give me a, an idea of what some recent data has come out and, and some of the narratives that have come from that data. Sure. Well, I mean,
1: I think first and foremost, regardless of whether you are a place of worship, an arts and culture organization, um, sport, working with older adults, mental health services, hospitals, universities, you name it, trust is at the heart of Of the offering that we have and that could be trust to say i'm a parent who is going to allow my child to participate in a program trust from the perspective of maybe a middle-aged person who's doing elder care and entrusting their parents to a program trust as it relates to giving you my hard-earned time and my hard-earned money um, and so it really is a universal principle for us as a sector. So I, I think part of the observation and or concern at Imagine Canada's level is that we are living in an environment where trust in institutions globally is dropping, whether it's with government, whether it's with leaders, whether it is um, you know, with corporate uh, entities, mm-hmm. and that because many charitable organizations are in fact identified as longstanding institutions, that that sort of global transformation is also affecting our sector. Sure. So we're not immune to it. We don't operate in a bubble. And I mean, there's you know, different polling from Edelman. And, and I mean, the one that always sticks in my head was the Mattart Foundation, very large study uh, called Talking About Charities. It's, it's a little bit older now, but at the time it was really telling because what it showed was that charitable institutions have a privileged place of trust in Canadian society polling only behind small businesses and industry, and third, only behind doctors and nurses hmm. as trusted professionals. Interesting. And yet, at that time, when asked, are charities generally honest about how they use donations, there was a 14-point percentage drop in the responses over the lifetime of the survey. Hmm. And so these are now being mirrored and reflected in more current um, uh, data that we're seeing. And so while we do continue to enjoy trust from Canadians,
0: there, there is slippage. And, and I think slippage is from a variety of reasons. Is one of the, like, this is called the Cause and Effect podcast, where we talk about causes that people care about. Is it fair to say that one of the causes you care about is is educating Canadians and people worldwide about, about this industry and, and the importance and the perils and the stress and the issues that we face in a day-to-day?
1: Yeah, I'd sort of slightly reframe it. We actually believe at Imagine Canada that part of our role is to invite questions and inquisitiveness about the sector. So for us to just simply say we want to educate Canadians, we have neither the capacity nor the bandwidth to do it, um, and we actually can't necessarily get at all of them. However, if we can create places of questioning where Canadians now come to the sector saying, I don't understand this or I'd like to learn more or, or tell me about this. We've created an opening where they're receptive to information. And then you
0: can equip the the organizations with the, with what people are caring about. Absolutely. And I think that's where the
1: wonderful combination of what's happening locally combined with what's happening nationally mm-hmm. provides an opportunity for those leaders to take advantage of those moments and say, well, it's great that you asked because here in our community, this is what we excel at right. and this is what we do. And we fit into this broader national picture right. of a society
0: that really cares about its neighbors. So where where did you get the urge to make this your life's work?
1: Well, I, I think part of it was, uh, you know, I think it's a, a classic story for my generation which was uh, I was raised in a family where my parents did volunteer work. My mom was on the board of the local multiple sclerosis society, started off at, in the ladies' auxiliary, wouldn't come out of the kitchen, and from a personal development perspective, ended up chair of the board making presentations in a way that she never thought. Wow. Um, my, my dad, who uh, like I actually grew up in the carnival business, and so I, I, my dad was a carny, and I worked in carnivals my entire upbringing, but... The way he came into it was he, he, as persuaded by my mom, would bring a carnival into Hamilton, which is where I'm from. Very cool. And um, we would raise money for MS Research as part of the carnival. And so I the idea of giving back, because it was also interesting. We had nobody in our family affected by MS. Huh. But a friend of my mum has got her involved and then she stayed involved for a very long period of time. And as a young adult, one of my very first volunteer experiences was when COPS Coliseum opened in Hamilton. One of the very first charitable events in there was a skateathon a thon that I was the vice chair of where Bobby Hull was the celebrity spokesperson raising money for MS. Cool. And so it had transferred through my upbringing yeah. and it really was kind of just part of who I was. So when I thought about a career, I felt very strongly that I wanted to get up in the morning and do something that was making a difference mm-hmm. um, to Canadian society.
0: Do you feel like you're doing that?
1: Absolutely, and, yeah. and you know, I've had this, this chance to work for different types of organizations and towards the end of my years and my time at Big Brothers Big Sisters, I was becoming convinced that some of the barriers facing the organization were broader than the organization. It's systemic. They were systemic. Mm-hmm. and So the opportunity and the privilege to come to Imagine Canada and hopefully make a, contribu- a contribution to addressing those systemic barriers. Was really something that I was jazzed to do. What are
0: you? What are some that you still see uh, that need to be addressed? That that are barriers that have yet to be toppled down? Yeah,
1: I, I think there's a, a wide variety. I mean, I think from a very tactical perspective, um, working with the federal government to create a system that allows social good to thrive, because mm-hmm. social good is evolving. It, yes, there's charities and nonprofits, but we're witnessing the growth of social entrepreneurship and social finance instruments, and and I wouldn't say that the regulatory and legislative environment has kept pace or has shown mm. leadership there. Right. We can affect change there, you know, from an individual or or um, citizenry kind of perspective. We are witnessing a decline in giving, as a percentage of people who are giving in this country. The opportunity to perhaps. Reframe that in a way that creates creates a new social norm for giving and sets future generations up for success, and to ensure that those services are still available in communities. These are the kinds of systemic changes that you know I hope we can affect.
0: When when you spoke in Winnipeg, uh, I think last year you talked a lot about the trends when it came to how people are giving. Uh, you know the tr- the general trend that there are fewer donors, but they're giving more. Is that yep. my I? Characterizing it properly, uh, is that continuing? And how can people that work in this industry f- adapt to that? How how are we supposed to, you know, tighten our belts and figure that all out?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I'm hopefully it's not about tightening our belts. Hopefully, it, it's a. Well, I'm going to switch analogies here, and instead of looking for you know smaller pieces of the pie, hopefully we think more about baking more pies, mm-hmm. um, and actually expand the space. I mean, so our you know, Are the trends continuing? Yes. I mean, our research over the last 30 years shows that a higher concentration of wealthy, older Canadians are giving more and more of the money to the point where we're projecting that in the next 10 to 15 years, about $4.3 billion is in serious jeopardy of exiting the charitable system. And that is because mm-hmm. that money now is coming from donors who are already in their 70s, 80s, and mm-hmm. 90s. So unless protected in wills or through foundations, um, when that wealth transfers from deceased parent to middle-aged child, yeah. that there's nothing to suggest right now that that won't be used for them to pay off their mortgage, pay down their own kid's student debt, or it's time to live a little. Uh, and and there's nothing wrong with yeah. that. So do I realistically believe that $4.3 billion will exit the system? no. But even if two billion did, right, you know, in a, in a charitable system that would already be characterized as under stress, that would add to the stress. And so I think that the type of thinking that organizations need to embody are a few things. One is, we've got to have some courage to mm-hmm. ask questions about the status quo. If, if the, the national data is mirrored in local reports, we better be asking questions about, what are we going to do? I mean, are we engaging the middle-aged children of our older donors at all in Right. You know, what are we doing to connect with young people who their economic starting point is so fundamentally different than that of their parents and grandparents? It's not as if they don't have a desire for, oh, for social sure. good. Yeah, yeah. They don't
0: have the means. Mm-hmm.
1: But if the only way we engage them is through a donor lens— They're not going to give. That's not the language they speak anymore. Exactly. And and so I think that this is about our sector starting to think very differently about the way it operates, looking for multi-pronged approaches to fiscal health that include a balance of grants and contributions, donors that are supporting them maybe earned income properties that they create Mm. so they have sustainable revenues from more of a sales perspective and that together they create uh, a system that is healthier and more sustainable because i think there's many organizations now who are overly reliant on one or two revenue streams and if if something were to happen to those those organizations are in big trouble
0: yeah especially if it's you know governmental yeah or whatever yeah um when we talk about the systemic issues that that we have let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the role of philanthropy when it comes to maybe a safety net or, or filling in the gaps that other governmental agencies or whatever we would maybe expect to fill. What role do you think general philanthropy should play on a national scale when it comes to taking care of our citizens in Canada? Well, I I think no
1: matter what I think (laughs) it's a reality. Yeah. So one of, the, one of the objections I often hear from Canadians who are more affluent than others around the idea of giving is the statement that I'm already taxed way right. more than lower middle income Canadians. My contribution is through my tax dollars. And, and I think we, it's fair to acknowledge that that's the case. It's also fair to acknowledge that if we want to enjoy and expect the services that we've come to lean on over the last number of decades, that tax dollars alone won't get us there. Hmm. And so there has to be an understanding or a realization that um, at all levels of society, tax dollars will provide some revenue to a system. But if, if we want the services that have been around for a long time, philanthropy is going to need to play a key role there. This idea of giving to support with not necessarily any direct return, and it might be direct return though, mm-hmm. could be your friends, family members, coworkers, or colleagues who benefit from the right. services. But this idea that there is a personal um, commitment to wanting to have healthy communities, I think is an important part of what people hopefully will think about.
0: How do you, so how do you get people to buy into that concept?
1: Well, you know, I think we have to talk about it more. And we also have to realize that perhaps our natural training ground for this kind of thinking is kind of eroding. So when we talk to many um, philanthropists about where they learn to give, they often cite places of worship Mm -hmm. as where they learn. They witnessed their parents putting money in the collection plate. Maybe they themselves were given a dollar to put in a collection plate or whatever that place of worship used to collect money. Well, you know, is in something like 1965, now don't quote me on these stats, but okay. they're close. In something like 1965, about 50% of Canadians self-identified as going to a place of worship once a week. That is now down to around 10%. So if we think about places of worship being a natural training ground for the societal value of giving, uh, and that is eroding, mm-hmm. where do we learn? Because to a certain degree, we, we live in, we can live in a society of invisible philanthropy. Mom and dad are busy. At 11 o'clock at night, they finally got a break. They pull out their credit card. They make their contribution to a charity. Their kids may not even be aware that they're living in a generous family unless they happen to talk about it and share it. And so where does that next generation learn that this is an incense? It's part of being
0: Canadian. It's part of being part of your community. That's interesting to think about. That it's it may it might be more prevalent to some families or some some groups or some communities than, but it's just not visible because of the digital revolution or whatever you want to call it. Let's talk a little bit about that and about how people are changing the way they give, whether it's you know a dollar here at the mar, at the superstore or whatever yep. it might be. How should organizations embrace that uh, that world? Well, I, I think that
1: organizations have wonderful opportunities here um, at sort of both ends of the giving spectrum there will continue to be li- likely larger gifts available from older Canadians for the next you know decade or two at the same time new instruments are being created now I don't advocate organizations just rushing out and trying everything I think organizations mm-hmm. need to be strategic yeah. you know does their cause or, or mission, resonate with the public in a certain way? And if so, what are those new kind of instruments of giving that might best align with it? That fits with that audience. Yeah, for sure. Because, you know, if we go back to sort of the, the, the resource crunch in terms of infrastructure and capacity, most organizations simply are not well enough resourced to try and undertake a multitude of new giving options. They'll need to think about it kind of more from an innovation perspective. What's our strategy? What do we wanna test and try? Sometimes it'll work, sometimes it won't. If it doesn't, we'll adjust and retry. And sometimes we might say, this is not a vehicle that works well for us, let's go find another one.
0: It goes back to what you're talking about with courage, having the courage to try that and and the confidence that you can try something and maybe it's not a direct hit right off the hop and you can try something and pivot and try something else. I think there's a, a pretty big fear of of branching out into new ideas because if you fail, a failure is bad and therefore maybe supporters of yours won't support Well, and, tries and in the I, I go
1: one step further. I'd say not only is failure bad, failure could be catastrophic. Right. Yeah. So to a certain degree, there's an odd design flaw in the charitable and nonprofit sector. Rarely do we see organizations that have what I would call R&D money, research and development money, which means that any innovative effort, whether it is a new fundraising initiative, a new program development, whatever it might be, is generally linked to the main operating budget. Mm -hmm. Most charities run so close to break even that failure on an innovation could actually significantly hurt the overall financial performance of the organization. They don't have a protected place to invest, try, retool, invest, and try again. And, and the other part of it is, and I often talk with boards of directors, that boards of directors can either be enablers of this kind of thinking or barriers, because to a certain degree, the buck stops with them. They, they make some of these ultimate decisions. And, and I often invite um, both the board directors and senior staff leaders who play a role in the recruitment of board directors to ask themselves the question, are they building boards who are comfortable with ongoing adaptation and change? Do they actually ever go and ask mm. someone who they're contemplating inviting to join their board, What their have you ever yeah, led yeah. a major change initiative? Because I've been around the sector long enough to know that at times that courage gets stifled by risk And if there's not a trusted guide at the board table to say, well, you know what? Yes, this is a bit risky. I've led this kind of thing in my workplace. You need a champion. You do. And one who can help mitigate that risk um, through reason and through experience. And that enables the board to be able to take safe, smart risks. We're not advocating going, you know, kind of just, let's just go you know, binders <laughs> off and we'll try anything. Right. Um, but I think there is an opportunity for uh, greater innovation that is not stifled because of lack of R&D money, lack of appetite for risk, fear of change, some of those things can be overcome.
0: Do you think those people are just few and far between, or is it just that they kind of get voted down by the majority or like? I don't even think we're getting them on our boards yet. That's it.
1: And and I think to a certain degree, it's because we've never really asked the question. We look for a lawyer, we look for an accountant. You know, there's generally people from the mission and cause, some people from the private sector who can help us sell the foursomes at the golf tournament. But do we actually ever seek intentionally agents of change To sit on our board i don't hear very many organizations talking about that and if we Hmm. want to be adaptive and innovative we may need to seek those characteristics in having a few of those seats at the board table
0: what are some questions you could ask potential board members that would that would uh show if they were an agent of change or not well i'd be asking
1: them about their work life and and saying you know in in the work that you do is your industry going through change, and if so, you know what or has kind it of recently? That's yeah. right. Or has it? Um, have you been someone who has led that change? Have you been an advocate for change, or through the conversation have you learned that they've been a resistor to mm. change? And I think there are ways of just asking questions about those kinds of things that allow people to tell their story and where you can kind of gauge their comfort level with these types of conversations.
0: What about the sitting board members who currently are maybe a barrier to that change? How would, how, what's a good way to approach that type of a person? Um,
1: sorry, the people who are currently on yeah, the if board. Say,
0: say there's a board that's adverse to change yeah. and how, and you're an organization that's trying to try new ideas and get, get the opportunity to do so. How do you, how do you uh, approach the board with the idea that they're going to be a little bit defensive perhaps, or a little bit, uh pushing back but like what, what can you say to make them get yeah, onto your side
1: I, I think for me the starting point would be before you even with a board like that before you even contemplate bringing agents of change onto the board if the board is not in a state of readiness to hear that, right. likely those volunteers who are brought on will just be frustrated and leave. Right. So whether it is through strategic planning conversations, whether through, it's through data analysis that suggests that we, we should be doing something different because our data is pointing in that direction, kind of getting an appetite or a state of readiness to be open To hearing different ideas so that there's not an automatic shutdown mechanism. Mm. Um, The other thing is, and I've kind of tried this trick in the past where um, I would appoint someone in the room to be sort of an advocate, like an angel advocate rather than a devil's advocate, Mm. to say, and and maybe give them changes the lens that they work through, and that when People are trying to shoot things down. Their job is to surface the good in the conversation to ensure that the devil's advocates don't automatically reign supreme, but that they're appointed with the task of looking for the other side to be able to surface that part of the conversation.
0: That's very smart. I I think I'm going to use that in the future (laughs) because I love the concept of an angel's advocate because so often it's always what is wrong with this idea. And very infrequently do you hear, well, but what about the potential positives?
1: Yeah. And hopefully over time, um, the culture changes. So you don't need to necessarily appoint a designate. The other thing was I always gave them the last word because mm. what it did was it guaranteed that the, meeting, meaning who, sorry. the angel advocate. right. Um, so they were, the, they were the last word on the topic because it it allowed it to end on a more positive note sure. so that there wasn't
0: kind of a, a, maybe just a bad taste in people's mouth if it was going in a, in a more negative direction. Well, I would be, I would kick myself if I didn't ask you about uh, national trends because I think you're in a very unique position to be able to talk about that. Um, so maybe just broadly, give me an idea of how Canada is trending when it comes to giving and when it comes to different age groups and just kind of give me a rundown of what pops to mind when you, when you think about trends in this industry. Sure. I mean, as it, as it relates to giving, I, I think, you know, and
1: we've spoken briefly about it before, but, but the biggest trends we're keeping our, our eye on are are the trends that we're witnessing, where many current donors are are aging into their their latter years, this concentration not just of age but of wealth. Mm. Um, in Canadian though the one percent of tops top tax filers in this country now represent thirty percent of all donations. That's almost doubled over the last thirty years. Oh wow! So there is a real wealth and age concentration, and so. Again, that's an opportunity. It's an opportunity because you know where the money is. It's easier to find and target. The challenge is the wealth transfer is coming. And what does that mean for organizations when mom and dad pass away have been active supporters of a cause, but the kids might not feel that way when that money goes to them. The other part is the other end of the giving spectrum. What is happening with younger generations who, the, the, the most recent 30 years of giving report that we did with the Riedel Hall Foundation showed that in um, 1985, people un- donors under 40 represented 46.1% of donations in this country. And hmm. you fast forward to 2014 and that was down to 22%. Okay. So had it dropped significantly, but I think the important part is that it we don't believe it, that that's a reflection of the generosity of young people. We just believe that it's a reflection of a different economic starting point between contract work and lack of permanent work, higher levels of student debt, and less affordable living arrangements, particularly in urban centers, mm-hmm. it's hard to be a, a monthly mission-based donor the way your parents and grandparents
0: were when you don't know where the next dollar is coming from. For sure, I can confirm that personally <laughs> yeah. as well. Absolutely. And so these
1: are these are trends. So um, the question is, can we, as a as a system, ensure that young people are engaged in social good in a way that? is their way It's not necessarily
0: monetary. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
1: And because if we don't engage and keep them engaged, by the time they're actually able to be donors, they will be completely disconnected from the system. The other trend that we're witnessing Hmm. at the other end is is it's interesting how the charitable construct and even the word charity isn't as appealing but many young people really seeking the idea of social entrepreneurship as a way of doing good like
0: not even doing business with an organization unless they prove that they have some sort of component built into their business model even right yes and
1: ensuring that companies that they will start um are being start with social good being started with social good in their DNA ah
0: okay interesting yeah. so how do we how do we inspire more people to buy into that idea and and you know it seems as though quite frequently frequently we go to events and it seems like we're kind of preaching to the choir and there's a lot of times where the people who need to be in the room to hear or the people who need to be listening to this podcast maybe aren't listening so like how do you how do you convert the non-converted when it comes to the importance of social good and the importance of of giving back and you know it's a big question but i mean what would you say to someone who needs to be Converted to, to to that side of the,
1: the the argument. Yeah, well from an organizational standpoint It might be something as simple as saying could we take two to five percent of our the, the types of presentations that we do and Intentionally go and find new audiences um, hmm. Like I I speak to a lot of charitable sector groups Interestingly though the biggest responses I get are when I speak to corporate or government groups
0: because responses in what what do you mean?
1: Because they have not been living this every day, the information is relatively new oh, okay, to them. Okay. It might be a surprise. It might be a surprise to government that this sector employs two point four million people and is eight point five percent of GDP, mm-hmm. and they're making decisions without considering the needs of this sector. You know, in I, I had a, an opportunity to speak at a uh, an economic summit recently, and i uh, imagine Canada. We now have the ability to do. Riding by riding breakdowns across in every part of the country that can show the number of charities The number of people they're employing both on a full and part-time basis The total revenues and give them a top sort of 35 Here's the largest charities in your constituencies But for this economic summit we rolled all the ridings together into the region and were able to shock the private sector for people sure. by saying, depending on how you're counting the numbers, we're either the number four employer or the number one employer. Wow. And, and part of it for us, I think, is reframing our message into language that resonates with different audiences. Simply going and just talking about the usual charitable stuff, when that's not the lens through which they look, well, they'll kind of tune out. It's nice. However, if we can actually start to frame these Um, These thoughts and ideas and data points into language that resonates with them in their absolute businesses I'll tell you. I I think we have an opportunity to
0: reframe the conversation. Yeah, it seems as though in the work that we do It's frequently Here's the impact. Here's the great story about someone turning their life around or what have you but that doesn't necessarily resonate with a, a Business person or an entrepreneur who's worried about that bottom line worried about the numbers. How important is it to balance out your uh, communications to make sure that you're covering both those bases of, of the people who want to hear the happy story, but they also want to know the, the actual economics of what's happening?
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, it's all about market segmentation and understanding your audience. I mean, I, have a, I think uh, it's kind of a, just a blanket statement. I personally believe that when you speak to an audience, that about half the room loves heartwarming stories, and the other half wants facts. If you combine or blend both of those into your messaging, you at least have a starting point of hitting pretty much everybody in the room, unless there's just some real cynics that don't want to, <laughs> don't want to listen to it oh, at yeah. all. Um, you know. That being said, depending on who the audience is, it may be more important to skew to a certain way. Like even this this economic group that I was speaking with they're trying to attract companies into their region they weren't even talking about the fact that the strength of the charitable and nonprofit sector would enrich the quality of life Mm. of the kinds of people that you're recruiting that that they're recruiting to come and live and work there and it was almost like they had a wild card and they weren't playing the card Um, and so i think there's different ways for us to invite leaders in this country to acknowledge understand and appreciate that there's an entire sector here that's providing good. And the other part is generally, if we can make it a human conversation, it works. Because virtually everybody in this country has been impacted by the work of the sector. So if we think about it in terms of asking people and inviting their their participation in a way in the discussion, we'll find out Mm -hmm. that somebody in their family was treated for mental health um, distress or, or you know, cancer treatment or went to a university or took art classes or played sport or whatever, yeah. there are connection points everywhere in their lives. Part of it is, though, they just haven't thought about it. Yeah, it well. already
0: exists, right? Yes. It's just a matter of, of connecting those dots for people. Yeah. For sure. Um, as, a, as a parent, how, how are you... Um, how are you imparting your wisdom when it comes to charity and when it comes to philanthropy on, on your kid, kids or kid, do you have multiple kids? Yeah. Three girls. Okay. Perfect. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I I, I wouldn't say imparting <laughs> is the way, because I, I think that kids have to find their own path. Right. Um, it was for me and my wife, it was an opportunity to expose them to things. So um, we did a, for a couple of years, we did this where, we would find a different organization, and uh, once every two months, we would try and participate as a family. Mm. And what was interesting was our our girls at that time were sort of at that awkward age where they weren't really old enough to be formal volunteers, um, so we had to be much more creative. So, for example, they would you know we would all get together and uh, figure out what the causes were. My wife is an avid baker, and Ooh. and and so. W- Cookies were made to take and stock for people living at Ronald McDonald House. The kids would participate in the process and actually go down and stock the cookie jars. Through that, they would learn a bit about the community. And so, whether it was this or, or actually taking them and and participating in in participating with um, sorry with um, uh, soup kitchens mm-hmm. and and serving food to homeless people mm-hmm. to understand that there are there's different ways of living yeah, in, this, sure. in this country. So it was just the idea of providing an openness as an, an exposure. So hopefully, as they become young adults and adults, that they'll find causes that they care about most deeply, and, and will get involved in them.
0: You really spoke to me when it comes to the sort of silent philanthropy and not passing on those, those, those uh, virtues down because they don't see them, even though they are there. And that's really interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm going to remember that forever because I think that's really very important. So at the end of our time together, um, we have a segment called Just Because, where I'm going to ask you seven quick questions. I don't want you to think about it too, too much and just kind of answer off the top of your head. Sound good? Sounds good. All right. So the first one, what is the first cause that you even remember caring about? Dr. Rigel's home for children in the west end of Hamilton. And what what was that all about? It was a home for
1: severely handicapped children. And when I was about eight or nine, uh, we would see these young people being pushed by their caseworkers in wheelchairs around our street, wanted to know more about it, our parents told us. And we ended up doing a backyard carnival, proudly took over something like $9.30, and that was the first participation I'd ever had in community good.
0: That's unreal. I love that. Do you have any crazy carnival stories from growing up? I'm sure you have a few. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe once the, once the microphones are off, you can tell me a couple of those. So that's almost like kind of like a lemonade stand, but it's with a carnival show. Absolutely. Right? Like yes. that's beautiful. I love it. Second question. This is a big one. If money, politics, and logistics were no issue at all to you, what's the first thing you would do in support of the cause that you care most about?
1: I'd set up a foundation. I'd be looking for something that could be there in perpetuity, that hopefully my kids and grandkids could participate and think about the legacy of social good.
0: Number three, what's the biggest misunderstanding or stigma about the cause that you most care about?
1: That it doesn't take money to do social good. And what I mean is it doesn't take money to have professional services to do social good. I think far too often people are still thinking that the work of charity should be done for free.
0: Yeah. Well, how do how how do we get them to understand?
1: I think this is about conversations. Yeah. I think it's about information, I think it's about authenticity, transparency mm. and accountability.
0: Well said. Question number 4, how do you know when it's time to throw in the towel? Hmm.
1: That's a good question. So I'm very stubborn. <laughs> so I may take that's a good a, thing. Right? I may it take, could be a good thing. May, may take, well, you know, years of fundraising <laughs> means persistence. Um, I'll be honest with you. I, I think that when the data tells you mm. that if, if really we're setting ourselves up to be better informed about the outcome and the impact of our work, there may be times when the data says it's time to do something different. And so it's not so much about throwing in the towel. It's finding a new opportunity. It's pivoting. Yeah,
0: it's a yeah, pivot. Yeah. Absolutely. Number five, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Never give up. That works well with the previous question.
1: Yeah. And it's funny because I, I actually was not successful getting into the university program that I sought to get into. And my dad just basically looked at me and said, well, what are you going to do about it? Um, it really wasn't something that as a teenage son I was interested in hearing at that point, but he wouldn't let it go. And as a result, uh, he was able to help me reframe my thinking, get really
0: dogmatic and earned my way in in second year. Beautiful. What advice would you give your 10-year-old self if you could talk to him? Be more courageous. How come? Um, Is there a moment that you weren't courageous? Well, I
1: I was someone who uh, I, I was fortunate that I accelerated a grade when I was in grade school. And I had a fall birthday. So I was generally younger than all my classmates by at least a year. Um, I was also very small. Hmm. And so I, I think that if I was to go back to my 10-year-old self, I would say the things that you were worried about, you didn't need to be worried about. Just go and be bold and be courageous and do it. But I, I was probably afraid at that time, I would say.
0: Most kids are honestly, especially if you're, you know, a little smaller than everyone or younger for sure. Definitely. Last question. What do you want to be remembered for?
1: Being a good dad. I I think that, uh, having kids has been, uh, a joy that I never thought of. I was not one who, when I got married, when my wife and I got married that it was to get married and have a family. I, I was sort of ambivalent about it. And yet it's been the greatest joy that, uh, that I could, I could ever think of. And so I, I hope that the people that they are is in some small part to the person I've been and uh, certainly my, my wife as well. And, and so hopefully that I, I, maybe a continued path of, of generosity and generous
0: thinking would be extended through them.
1: Did your
0: um, professional approach change once you became a father?
1: Um, a little bit. I, I made conscious choices to be home. And so I was someone who went home for dinner and had dinner with the family. There was no TV on. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked about what happened during the day. And I put in lots of hours, absolutely. But they would start after the kids went to bed again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as someone who coached and a lot of sports teams and stuff, I, I wanted to be involved. And uh, so I actually made career decisions based on that.
0: Interesting. Well, thank you for your insights. Your are uh, unbelievable conversation because you have such a unique perspective and I always appreciate being able to uh, share that with everyone else. And uh, yeah, thank you for your time. And well, thank you. We'll see you in probably a month or two, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you again to Bruce McDonald, president and CEO of Imagine Canada. Bruce and Imagine Canada are a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the philanthropic sector. So if you or someone you know works for the nonprofit or for a charity, direct them to this podcast, because I really think uh, hearing Bruce speak on on pretty much any topic is is a valuable experience. He's such a great guy and just a really great resource when it comes to philanthropy, uh, even on a national scale, as you just heard. If you want to learn more about Imagine Canada, their website is imaginecanada.com. C-A. And if you want to describe to Because and Effect, you can visit our website at becauseandeffect.org. That's becauseandeffect.org. Subscribing really helps us out, and it's wonderful. I've been quite overwhelmed by all the support all the subscribers and all the kind words and feedback from the first few episodes of the podcast so thank you so much it's very appreciated uh just listening is appreciated so thank you for your time all music on the because and effect podcast was composed and produced by trenton burton you can check him out at trentonburton.com because and effect is a project of the winnipeg foundation with special thanks to robert zirk and sonny promolo for production assistance i'm nolan bicknell you can follow me at nolan bicknell on all social media. And please follow the Winnipeg Foundation at WPGFDN as well. That's it for the cause and effect today. We'll see you next Tuesday for the next episode. And remember, take care of each other out there. Bye-bye.